Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast um, and today I'm going to look at the uh, process of what is euphemistically called liberation uh, in China in uh, 1949, um, the takeover of China by the Communist Party, uh, the People's Liberation Army, um, the beginnings of, of communist rule uh, in uh, 1949, obviously, um, start at the end of or the successful conclusion by the communists of the Chinese uh, civil war that had been raging on and off since 1927, and the um, departure by Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang to uh, Taiwan. Um, anybody who harbors any notions that there was some Manichaean uh, good and evil battle happening between the uh, the poor benighted nationalists and the, the wicked communists uh, again needs to kind of revisit this one uh, and, and examine what Chang did when arriving in Taiwan. Uh, one of his first acts was to execute thirty thousand uh, dissidents and potential troublemakers. Um, so it, it is entirely possible to suggest that. Perhaps had Chang been successful in the civil war, some of the ideological excesses uh, of um, the um, of the nationalists wouldn't have, have been uh, quite quite the same. Can't imagine there being a, a Chang-led uh, great leap forward. Uh, but much of the corruption and violence and cruelty uh, would no doubt have have played out. So today I'm going to look at the tragedy of liberation by Frank Dakota. Um, Frank Dakota's trilogy of um, Mao from the tragedy of liberation, uh, Mao's famine, and the cultural revolution, uh, a people's history, unrelentingly critical of uh, Mao and presents uh, Mao and Maoism as a, a vast human catastrophe for China. When totting up the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, the Hundred Flowers campaign, the anti-rightist campaigns, the anti-landlord campaigns, um, the creation of labour camps across China and re-education and, and, and all the works, one can't help but agree. Uh, there seems to be very little uh, on, in the Mao era that balances out such enormous suffering. So Frank Dakota writes about the uh, actual uh, communist takeover. He writes, Liberation began with fanfare. Communist rule in every important town was inaugurated with a carefully choreographed procession. Soldiers invariably opened the parade, followed by a lorry bearing a huge portrait of Mao Zedong. Dance troops dressed in blue, red and green dresses and silk scarves waving red flags and wearing white towel turbans performed the traditional harvest dance, the Rice Sprout Song or Yangi. Uh, swaying their bodies to the music, played by waist drums, heavy gongs and trumpets. The fluid dance movements were supposed to celebrate peasants in daily activities such as sowing grain or carrying water on shoulder poles. Here, it seemed was a form of art by the people, for the people, to be seen in every procession and at every meeting, even in the north, where the rice sprout song was popular 
ordinary farmers would have been puzzled by the way the troops performed the folk dance. Some of the melodies no longer had anything to do with local folk song, but were borrowed instead from the Soviet army. The traditional lyrics, like folk plays everywhere around the world, were often bawdy and downright obscene, telling stories of love and betrayal, but now they celebrated the abolition of unequal treaties and the victory of the People's Liberation Army. The traditionally complex dance steps had been simplified into three or four basic movements. A cast of traditional characters from fortune tellers and henpecked husbands to priests, squires and immortals were replaced by workers, soldiers and peasants. But in parts of China, traditional rice sprout songs meant little to ordinary people. In Xi'an, spectators were unable to identify any of the characters in the parade as they had nothing to do with local opera. The only thing that was the same was the ear-splitting banging of the gongs and drums which reverberated throughout the city so often that most days seemed like New Year's, an audible sign that times had changed. Many onlookers nonetheless enjoyed the festivities and as the celebratory sounds announced the end of the war. So the, so for a brief moment there are a considerable number of Chinese people who were simply relieved that conflict was over. There were those who had an inkling about what the communists had in mind, who were very, very worried about what would follow. But as in most scenarios, there was a, a sense of jubilation that the, the fighting had stopped, irrespective of which side had won. But the metaphor of the, um, the folk song is an interesting one. It's a kind of a motif, really, for uh, Maoist thinking of uh, co-opting uh, peasant life and peasant culture and, and um, the, the complex and rich folk culture of China and imposing upon it a variation of Marxist-Leninism um, where the principal classes of soldiers, workers and peasants are those that are the determinant drivers of history uh, in folklore, those that shape the material world are, as is said, uh, peasants and spirits and cuckolded husbands and um, local priests and the kind of the, the characters of uh, of these kinds of uh, kinds of dramas, um, and a new drama, uh, one based on an ideology that was entirely alien to China was uh, about to play out uh, for the next three decades. So, um, there were political rallies of a much bigger scale in places like Beijing and Shanghai. Um, uh, on the 6th of July, for example, uh, tanks rumbled uh, along the Nanjing Road um, through Shanghai. Um, and these were followed by workers uh, chanting and thrusting their fists in the air um, and the workers um, were sent by lorry to establishments such as the Shell Oil Company um, holding uh, banners and placards uh, denouncing capitalist exploitation. However, at this stage of things it all seems relatively tame. There seems to be um, a lot of symbolism, a lot of metaphor, but not a great deal of action. 
but this would change. On October the 1st, Mao declared the establishment of the uh, Central People's Government um, in a rally at um, Tiananmen Square in front of 300,000 people. And the picture, once again, Mao tries to give is one of relative moderation. Mao appears alongside um, various uh, kind of fellow traveller figures, for, for example, Song Qingling, um, who had been, who was the sister in law of Chiang Kai shek, um, but who had drifted towards the communists um, and had been. Um, was there at, at, in a kind of a quite a symbolic role. So that, but Mao uh, spoke to the uh, the audience. Um, he spoke in terms of uh, the uh, establishment of of a democratic China. Though his notion of democracy um, was uh, straight out of the kind of the Stalin playbook of it would be a, a China. For the peasants and workers, and that, that is a, a you know a democracy in, in itself, one that doesn't really involve elections or voting. The central government of the People's Republic of China is established. He proclaimed. Um, there were onlookers who um, were uh, deeply emotional and uh, who who wept with joy um, to hear these words. Um, and this was followed by uh, a military rally and the same kind of uh, almost circus-like um, uh, theatrics that had been seen previously, but of course, uh, that was mentioned previously, but of course kind of co-opted into uh, the telling of the kind of the, uh, the Marxist-Leninist um, Maoist story. The force behind the uh, Maoist takeover was the People's Liberation Army. Uh, the People's Liberation Army was demographically, almost exclusively, under the age of 25. These were uh, young people who had fought wars, um, who had been uh, entirely brutalised by the process, who had been uh, subject to uh, indoctrination, whose overall levels of education were such that the, f the first um, written uh, material they had probably ever come in contact with had been Maoist. Uh, and so their worldview uh, was uh, simple, harsh, and um, the outcome that they had been fighting for had now arrived. Um, they were in many ch communities seen as a kind of a quite a, a frightening and uh, alien group. And bear in mind that uh, China is this incredibly diverse, um, incredibly uh, rich social landscape of um, everybody from the poorest peasants to uh, small uh, small landowners, uh, wealthy peasants, um, artisans, and bourgeois types. Uh, many of whom found the ideology that had been imposed upon them entirely alien, uh, along with its chief enforcers, um, the People's Liberation Army, um, people for, with whom they had very little uh, connection or understanding of. Frank Dakota writes, after the, after the celebrations came the police. They were less friendly than the soldiers. They did the rounds, inviting themselves into people's homes, searching for forbidden items, 
uh, from weapons to radios. The policeman who harassed Kang Zhengguo's family in Jian had a shabby uniform and a heavy northern Shaanxi accent. We always served him tea in the parlour, but he seemed unaccustomed to smooth cedar chairs, and after sitting for a while, he would shift to a squatting position right on his, uh, right on his chair without even taking off his shoes. He was interested in the family's vacuum tube radio. The police suspected that the device was used to send wireless telegrams rather than receive broadcasts. The head of the Kang household was repeatedly summoned to the police station for questioning. Exasperated, he eventually surrendered the device. All over China, the police visited people suspected of being sympathetic to the old regime. In big cities like Beijing, Shanghai and Wuhan, special teams trained to take over public security arrived within days of liberation. After briefing by underground members of the Communist Party, they moved into precinct stations and police headquarters and ordered everyone to stay at their posts. General Chen Yi, now the new mayor of Shanghai, replaced his peaked cap with a dark beret, exhorting the police force in a three-hour meeting, an unlit cigarette dangling from his mouth. They should reform themselves and at the same time carry on their work without undue anxieties, he explained. The communists had little choice but to ask former government servants and puppet policemen to stay on. In each department, the post office, the city hall, the police headquarters, some of the top officials of the old regime slipped away while a few new faces appeared. So that is fascinating and revealing in itself on a number of levels. Firstly, the Communist Party had a strategy uh, planned for the assumption of power. Um, they had a, uh, a set of um, party uh, activists and enforcers that would establish themselves in towns and cities uh, to take over the apparatus of government and to start to uh, politicise it, um, to start to uh, malify it, if you will. And this meant that they could then uh, um, interact with the uh, agents and informers and sleepers that the party had had on the ground for many years, who had been making lists of suspect bourgeois types, class enemies. So even during the years where it appeared that Mao was losing the civil war, he was planning ahead for eventual victory and what that would look like. Um, this really taps into Marxist-Leninist and Maoist thinking uh, of um, the idea that the Civil War is never really won, that once you defeat the enemy on the battlefield, you have to fight a new kind of war, and that's a class war. You retain the control of the apparatuses of state, the police, the army. You don't wind up in some kind of Trotskyist, quasi-anarchist fantasy that was... Um, drifting around just after the Russian Revolution, the state could be dissolved. Far from it, in uh, Lenin's State and Revolution, he said that the state would now be essential, you have to hang on to it, because it's going to wage the next phase of class warfare, and that is rooting out all the nasty bourgeois types who will eventually undo your revolution uh, and getting rid of them. The other thing that is fascinating uh, on that basis is the extent to which... To which um, Mao uh, and his regime were uh, forced to or uh, allowed themselves to compromise by
by allowing uh, chief civil servants to stay behind. Now, there's an argument to say that uh, a regime like Mao's in a country the size of China's has no choice. One can't simply do a clean sweep uh, in a country of hundreds of millions of, of individuals and get rid of the entire bureau, uh, bureaucracy, uh, civil service, and the, the people that make everything from uh, the electric sub electricity substations continue operating to um, the economic system uh, of function or the, the operating of uh, municipal uh, facilities uh, function. You can't simply get rid of all of those. Um, there were... Instead, what one does is you have to play the long game. You find those that are willing to cooperate at first. You might decide later on that even if they're willing to cooperate, you still don't quite believe that they are um, who they uh, they are as loyal as they say what they are, and, and eventually get rid of them. Um, or you uh, simply crowd them with uh, party cadres, with um, political uh, commissars to make sure that their work is following uh, specific ideological lines. So, um, uh, one primary source from the era states, The typical bureaucrat of the regime, in his blue or khaki uniform, like a soldier's, topped by a cloth cap, which he often wears even in the office, resembles a Soviet commissar much more than a Chinese official. He lives frugally, He's a poor man and is clothed, fed and housed by the party. His tobacco and soap are given to him on the official ration and he hardly earns enough in a month to buy himself a pair of shoddy sandals. He sleeps on the floor and, is uh, and in requisitioned European buildings. Uh, he rejects the soft mattress that would prevent him from sleeping. He is a distant, he is distant with strangers and apart from those few men who are appointed to deal with foreign relations, he is inaccessible. He insists that other Chinese speak to him in the Peking Tong, now more than ever the official language of the whole country, uh, and not in the local dialect of Shanghai or elsewhere. Um, so that is the, the kind of individual who was now um, appointed to oversee uh, the transition to um, the new the, the new kind of government that was uh, in the words of uh, Maoist party cadres the ideal kind of bureaucrat. Obviously, this would pre present a, a problem for the future, and this would pre um, present the kind of the basis of future purges. That those sorts of um, self-denying, ascetic. Um, Martyrs for the revolution, people who basically uh, lived in poverty and slept on floors and were public administrators by day and party activists by night and simply lived and breathed for the revolution. They are very, very few and far between because basically human beings aren't like that or, or very, very few human beings are like that. But the uh, that way of describing the individual, was drawn straight out of the 19th century Russian revolutionary intelligentsia tradition. Um, uh, books like uh, What is to be Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done, which uh, presented the uh, romanticised version of the revolutionaries 
somebody who essentially sleeps on a bed of nails to toughen themselves endlessly uh, with privation uh, for the revolutionary struggle to come. Someone who whose view of themselves as an individual is that the individual is, is irrelevant and the the uh, the the greater uh, um the the greater entity of the revolution itself is the the only thing that that actually actually matters um so government employees from the the old nationalist regime um continued to do most of the work um the nationalist police had begun um registering households in 1945 and handing out identity cards to cities under their control, um, which had meant that the infrastructure of control already existed. Um, people's names and details and all sorts of valuable information about them existed in uh, card file indexes. Um, and so now, as far as the communists were concerned, um, the the regime was able to uh, identify people more uh, easily as being uh, suspect classes um, and they could decry some individuals um, as being uh, dangerous and control the, f the amount of food they had access to. Uh, food rationing cards were given to the head of each household um, and that person could also be made responsible for reporting any information about the household that the um, the authorities needed to know. So once again, if you look at the uh, Bolshevik regime in 1918, if you look at the period 1945 to 48 in Eastern Europe, and the um, the Maoist revolution. Control of food is a key way in which um, communist uh, authorities establish their control of entire societies. Um, endless, uh, endless rationing and privation uh, were ways in which um, people had fewer options than to uh, obey the party. This uh, led to a dramatic increase in bureaucratism, uh, something that uh, aspects of, or dissident aspects of the both the Soviet and the Maoist regimes uh, both decried in both Russia and in China. But it also meant that the, the state could penetrate homes uh, and houses and lives and individuals in ways that it had never been possible beforehand. So... Um, household registration um, was one level of control, but the next was um, individual um, class identification. So class labels would be given to individuals, uh, which would include their family background, occupation and individual status. There were about 60 of these labels, they're called the Cheng Fen. Um, which would also, which would um, divide then down into broader class categories. These would be ranked as good, middle and bad on the basis of their presumed loyalty towards the revolution. For example, good classes would include revolutionary cadres, revolutionary soldiers, revolutionary martyrs, industrial workers and poor and lower middle peasants. Middle classes would be the petty bourgeoisie, small shopkeepers and things like that, the middle peasants and the intellectuals and professionals, they might still be useful. Bad classes were landlords, rich peasants and capitalists. And these class um, 
designations, these class groupings, would soon be simplified into two opposites, red or black, friend or foe. Um, so these would determine the uh, fates of individuals for the rest of their lives. And children would inherit the status of their parents. Uh, once again, very, very reminiscent of Stalinist Russia as the uh, label of former people or kulak uh, could haunt a person for the rest of their lives and determine their access to jobs, housing, food or the possibility of them being endlessly arrested. So that what we've talked about there this morning is just the very, very beginnings of um, the, the Maoist takeover of China. Um, and I'll try to return to this in, in, in a little while. Um, and look at some of the kind of the, the the deeper inroads that the Maoist regime makes into the lives of ordinary people. Thanks for listening, and remember, if you can support us via Patreon, that's always appreciated. All the best. Thanks. Bye bye. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.